Ah, the middle of the first week of the year and plenty from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. The nurses end up being the face of UHL like, and they end up just taking everything out on them. So you're idea. saying that you saw some people coming in and firing abuse at the nurses at the nurses station? Oh yeah, they were getting us left, right and centre. Like. Well the short answer is anywhere that's working above 100% capacity is, is not safe. It's literally leaving Earth and um, going on a lunar orbital mission around the moon and then coming back to Earth, we hope. <laughs> so you would be going to the dark side of the moon? Exactly. Whoa. <laughs> Pink Floyd would be very proud. <laughs> yes, yes. And to start, dominating the day's news, the New Year's hospital crisis. Here's Audrey Carvel for Morning Ireland. The level of flu has not yet peaked, so the levels of overcrowding in our hospitals is likely to get worse. That's according to the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly on a day when a record number of patients had no hospital bed available to them. 931 was the number in the past 24 hours. These are people who doctors have assessed to be sick enough to be admitted to hospital. Well, Stephen Donnelly visited St Vincent's and Beaumont hospitals in Dublin yesterday evening and afterwards he spoke to reporters. Government's focus is making sure that um, all measures that can be taken are taken. So what does this include? It includes the use of all available private capacity. That's private hospitals, private diagnostics, uh, home care, home care supports, GPs, who I want to acknowledge have really stepped up. They've agreed to do additional uh, work uh, this week and, and, and into the coming weeks. And I want to acknowledge that uh, it's very useful indeed. We're... Um, Uh, We're looking at uh, staffing. Uh, We're very keen to see senior decision makers uh, on site, uh, particularly when when patients uh, need them, be it it late at night, uh, be it at the weekends, uh, where that is needed, and various other measures to um, make sure that there are options for patients once they're admitted to get up into a ward bed. To do that, obviously, we need to make sure that all discharge options are available. Um, One of the, the things the HSE... Uh, has been bringing online is more and more options for the hospitals to discharge to uh, community nursing units, to community beds, uh, as well as home uh, home support beds. So I'll be updating Cabinet uh, tomorrow. Uh, I'll be meeting with the HSE senior team again uh, on Friday, and obviously we'll be um, we'll be managing this on a uh, on a daily basis. Um, people have asked why the pressures. Uh, that we're seeing now, um, we know that there has been an unprecedented level of investment uh, by government since COVID arrived. We have about 950 extra hospital beds, a lot of extra ICU capacity, hundreds of extra uh, community beds, over 16,000 more um, healthcare professionals working within the HSE. So we've seen a permanent expansion in our public health system over the last few years that is unprecedented. And so people are, people are asking, well, then why are we still seeing these pressures? What the HSC are telling me um, and what the, the treating clinicians in the emergency departments are saying is they're still dealing with COVID, obviously. There's still a lot of people coming into hospital with COVID. Uh, there have to be separate um, uh, pathways for COVID patients. There are infection prevention and control measures around COVID patients that mean that more beds uh, or less beds rather become available when, uh, when COVID patients are coming in. We've had a big wave of RSV. Uh, the latest figures show that that is falling, and we want to see that continue to fall. But what I'm hearing uh, this week, what I'm hearing, what I was hearing last week, and what I'm hearing uh, um, here today and in, in Vincent's today, is that the flu wave um, 
is, is, uh, is very severe. Uh, it's hit earlier than it normally would. And so we have this perfect storm of uh, RSV, flu, uh, and COVID, obviously, as well as all of the normal pressures. And that really that has absorbed um, the significant additional capacity that um, has been put into the system. Health Minister Stephen Donnelly then Audrey spoke to Dr. Pater Gilligan. Dr. Gilligan, you're welcome and good morning to you. Could you bring us up to date about Beaumont, what, what the scene has been like there in the, in the hours of yesterday evening, last night, overnight? so particularly challenging, I think, like every uh, hospital in the country at the moment. uh, We have over 34 admitted patients in the emergency department. So those are patients who have been assessed by the emergency medicine team, assessed by the in-hospital on-call teams, and have been deemed appropriate for admission, but there's no hospital bed immediately available for them uh, and hasn't been uh, in a timely manner for them. And and that's a huge challenge because essentially that means 100% of the capacity of the emergency department is occupied by patients who are boarded awaiting a hospital bed. The solution is a... Definitely the development of capacity, and I I acknowledge that the minister has said that there's 950 additional beds in the system, but that is even less than half of the lowest estimate of the requirements of the system. We're looking at really 5,000 additional beds being required by the acute hospital system, and they need to be developed, and there needs to be a plan in terms of how that's going to be achieved uh, in, in a timely manner so that we can essentially avoid this reality for patients and the staff providing care to them into the future. So we, we need those 5,000 beds and we need a, a clear plan as to when they will happen. So those in the th- short just, term, just to go back on the 34 patients who were admitted but there's no bed for them, where yes. are they and are they getting the treatment that they need? So they, they are uh, receiving the treatment, but not in the manner that any of us would wish uh, to, to have to deliver it. Some of those patients are sitting on chairs uh, around our nurses' station. Uh, some of those patients are, are on trolleys uh, in the assessment area, in the majors area as well, uh, and indeed in the resource facilities that we have. So essentially, our available capacity is hugely uh, constrained. And of course, the challenge that that creates for us is that likely today we will, uh, as usual, receive somewhere around about 180 to 220 patient attendances and we'll be trying to deliver that care in two to three trolleys uh, spaces which is just not an achievable task so we do need as every hospital in the system uh, with an emergency department what we do need is to enact the full capacity protocol and that means that rather than housing uh, patients in the emergency department who need to be on a ward moving those patients to ward areas mm-hmm. where they may well be on a bed or a trolley awaiting further care but that's a safer environment and we know that from the international literature it's safer to move one to two additional patients to each ward in the hospital rather than treat the emergency department as though it has rubber walls. But the biggest concern I would imagine that patients and their families have at the moment patients who are in your hospital and other hospitals and who don't have a bed and are in those conditions that you've just described is is this hospital safe for me to be in and what do you say to them? Well, the short answer is anywhere that's working above 100% capacity is is not safe um, and it's not as safe as it should be. And again, we know that from the the research that has been done both in Ireland and internationally. We know that there's delays to receiving antibiotic therapy for those with infection. There's delays to recognition of and treatment of heart attack in those patients suffering that. There's delays to the treatment of stroke as well because essentially it, it takes longer for the doctor to be able to 
be in a position to see that patient because there isn't an available clinical space. So there are definitely clinical consequences to our failure to develop the capacity that the system so clearly needs. Dr. Patter Gilligan there then. Reporter Moira Hannan was outside St. Vincent's Hospital in Dublin and spoke to a woman who'd spent the night in the ED with her sick husband. Tell us about your experience. Well, after coming up to Vincent's at 11 for 11 o'clock with my husband. Last uh, night, 11 o'clock? Yeah, last night at 11 o'clock and he still hasn't been seen. And after hammering down the door to get in, to, to get him to pain relief, they brought in another man and they just threw me in, in the wheelchair and there's a whole lot of people in there with drips in the waiting room. It's ridiculous. Well, the lack of space inside hospitals means there's also a backlog of ambulances outside with nowhere to transfer their patients to. Earlier this week, ambulance bypass protocols were activated at University Hospital Limerick, which had 97 patients waiting for a bed yesterday. For a number of hours, non-critical patients were diverted to the closest appropriate hospital. Well, our reporter Angus Cox has been speaking about the situation to Brendan Flynn from the National Ambulance Service representative Association. The situation uh, in the hospitals uh, is no different than it was last year or the year before. If anything, it's worse. Unfortunately, ambulance crews are going out when they arrive at the emergency department. They're uh, they're finding it difficult uh, to hand over their patient. Now, if the patient has an acute problem, obviously they can be brought in to a more appropriate place. But for the majority of patients. They're going in uh, and there is no bed for the patient to go on. So the patient remains on the ambulance trolley uh, and we are then left waiting for, in some cases, considerable periods of time, two, three, four plus hours uh, to hand over patients. And those waits uh, have been getting uh, longer, unfortunately. Um, We've seen patients uh, deteriorating because, unfortunately, the nurses and the doctors within the the particular uh, A&Es are are overworked, Uh, they're understaffed, there are patients uh, in chairs, there are patients in trolleys. Uh, Every area of the A&Es are uh, broadly being used to accommodate as many patients uh, as possible. Brendan Flynn there. Then Audrey spoke to Cork GP, Dr. Dermot Quinlan. Dr. Quinlan, you're very welcome to the programme. Um, just listening there to Mr. Flynn, from a clinical perspective, how would you assess the impact on a patient waiting for hours in an ambulance before being transferred to the emergency department for treatment? I think it's it's very regrettable that people have to wait a long time in an ambulance uh, while waiting to enter an emergency department. Um, against the backdrop, we I've got figures from Cork and Kerry and South Dock showing that over the Christmas period between the 23rd and 28th of December, the GPs in South Dock saw 6,980 patients. So that's almost 7,000 patients over those six days. And the good news is that less than 7% of those patients were referred to the emergency department. So that's less than 500 out of almost 7,000 patients that we saw in South Dock. And over 90% of these patients were seen within five hours. So I think this shows that GP has a capacity to see very substantial numbers of people, treat them in a timely, effective fashion and divert the vast majority of them, like less than 7% of them were referred to the emergency department over the Christmas period. So... I think the the role of general practice really needs to be further expanded. Um, We have a very substantial deficit in the number of GPs. And while the number of hospital consultants has doubled in the last 15 years, the GP headcount has remained relatively static. So the Department of Health 
suggest that the number of GPs would increase from about 4,000 currently to over 6,000. And the number of GP nurses we are calling, because the GP nurses do a huge amount of work, of the 29 million consultations undertaken in general practice per year, there are fantastic GP nurse colleagues do 8 million of those in terms of baby vaccines, cervical smears. So we need to double the number of GP nurses in Ireland. Like my practice in Glanmire, where we have eight GPs, we've just got one whole time equivalent practice nurse. If we were in the UK, we would have between five and 10 uh, GP nurses. So we need a substantial uplift in the number of GPs and the GP nurses. And the Irish College of General Practice has a working paper on the future of general practice. We've invited the minister to establish a working group and I heard our ambulance colleague saying we need a working group. Well, we already have identified uh, 10 innovative solutions that we think will help secure the place of general practice in continuing to deliver timely care because we are under very severe pressure at the moment mm -hmm. and um, you know, 7,000 patients being seen in South Dock across Cork and Kerry over Christmas. These are the GPs who are working in their own clinic this morning. Well, that, 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 that figure of almost 7,000, how would that compare to a couple of years ago or even last year? Is it, is it significantly higher? It's significantly higher. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that, again, that's driven by the surge that we've seen in the influenza, the COVID illness, uh, respiratory syncytial virus, group-based strep, and the increase in the number of uh, patients with eligibility for general, for medical cards, which, you know, increases the uh, consultation rate by 30%. And while we uh, support that in principle, the the proposal to expand the number of medical cards for people aged six to nine, we estimate that that will require a further 120 whole-time equivalent GPs and we simply don't have the workforce to deliver that care. Do all of those patients, the, the, the ones you treated, clearly you had to refer a number of them, but not, not a huge number, to the emergency department. So did all of them have to come in or could many of them have treated themselves at home? Um, I think the numbers were gone up substantially from early December over Christmas. So I think it reflects the surge in illness. I think if you're a parent who's worried about their sick child or somebody, an older person, maybe someone who's immunocompromised, a pregnant woman, there's lots of people who are ill and they seek GP advice. We would obviously encourage people to look at self-care initially. The HSE have a really fantastic website under the weather.ie and then pharmacists can give advice uh, for people. So, you know, general practice and GPs needn't necessarily be the first line of defence. Um, but I think there is a substantial upsurge in, in illness and part of that reflects the fact that uh, um, you know, we've been um, isolated from each other with masks and everything else for, and very necessary for the last two years. Um, and people are socialising again in large numbers. So I agree with your earlier speaker that uh, the number of acute respiratory illness is likely to continue to increase for at least the next couple of weeks. Dr. Dermot Quinlan there for Morning Ireland. And then later, Liam O'Brien spoke to Claire Byrne about his experience in Limerick Hospital over Christmas. Now, we've heard in recent days about those record numbers of patients on hospital trolleys across the country with particular issues in University Hospital Limerick which declared a major internal incident on Monday night due to overcrowding. Well, Liam O'Brien spent four days on a trolley in Limerick Hospital after going in on Stephen's Day and Liam joins me on the line now. Liam, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. How are you doing? Uh, today I'm not too good now. Um... But I'm, I'm just trying to get it started today. I'm still in kind of limbo since I came out, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm still not, not started. 
Right, we'll talk a bit more about that, but I just want to go back now to when this started for you, because Christmas Day and St. Stephen's Night, that's when you first felt unwell. Tell us a bit about why you needed to go into the hospital to UHL. Yeah, well, like, um, well, I do have Crohn's, like, and I, I could feel kind of a flare-up maybe happening coming up to Christmas and then then Christmas night it hit pretty bad and then on Stephen's morning I I gave in and I had to call for an ambulance and I was brought in into UHL on Stephen's morning. So what happened then when you when you got to the hospital on Stephen's morning? Uh, so basically they brought me off in um, uh a wheelchair just into the into where the ambulance people come in and you're kind of left there and there was I was brought into a little room and then I did an ECG and a um, blood pressure thing pretty much straight away and because my heart rate was kind of through the roof um, someone saw me and just put me on um, an IV for fluids and painkillers and that's because, um, yeah, I was in a lot of pain. I was Because of the Crohn's, I was completely dehydrated and more or less passing out. Mm-hmm. So I needed fluids pretty much ASAP. So, so were you in the wheelchair when that happened, when you got the IV fluids in that little room? Yeah, yeah. So I was, I, but I had no comfort sitting down. I had no real comfort anywhere in any position, but I was like, I have more comfort lying down. So I, I asked, could I get a trolley? And then... After a while, I was on the drip, I got a, a trolley in. So you were on the trolley then from when you went in or a couple of hours after you went in? Yeah, yeah. And how long were you on that trolley for? All in all, that one trolley for four days. Um, and then, because once I got my IV in the initial place, they moved me across the road or the corridor to a, just a corridor, basically. And then... I was kind of moved around for a couple of hours that first initial day within the same zone. And then I just kind of, I stayed within that corridor then for four days. Will you tell us a little bit about what that was like, Liam? Yeah, well, like the first, the first day was the worst because like there's in that zone, I was put into the corner and then I didn't get to meet anyone for hours. Um, and then that night, we'll say a, a doctor came and she thought it might just be an infection. And I was like, I've had Crohn's for years and I'm usually on top of it, but like flare ups happen. And I was like, I knew I knew I needed steroids and heavier painkillers. So I was kind of moved into a small little room just off um, that zone. It's, there's kind of four or five room kept for COVID patients. And then like, because of the pain, my temperature went through the roof as well um but i was only in there for about 10 minutes because someone was did test positive and i was moved out to the the counter of the nurse's station then for stephen's night and that's i spent the night at the the counter of the nurse's station that first initial night and from then then i mean it, it sounds from what you're describing that you're on this trolley you're being moved along a corridor out of a room back onto the corridor to the nurse's station. Is that does that describe what was going on? Yeah, this is all between within uh, like ten to twenty meters of it like of that zone. Everything's yeah. in, inside in that zone. Like like 
actual rooms and where there's curtains and stuff, you might have like 10, but there was could be 40 to 50 patients just around the place, trolleys, and they wouldn't even have trolleys sometimes, um, just in, on any chair they could get or wheelchairs or whatever. And the other patients who were there, what sort of injuries and conditions did you see? Um, well, like the first night I was at the, actually at the desk, so I like, I got to basically meet every single person that came in and like it was Stephen's night, it was a busy night anyway. So like it was kind of bedlam there for a long time. You can forget about sleep, um, but you had everything from um, like broken shoulders to dementia to overdoses to fights to everything, you know. So you're standing at the nurse's station, so the, the check-in point, really, for people coming in, that's where your trolley is for the first night. Yeah. So you're witnessing and everybody like, coming through. Yeah, like, and they're, like, they're coming in in droves and, like, naturally, you, you don't go to any unless you're in trouble and, like, every single patient is being told you have 13 to 15 hours at least to wait for a doctor. So, like, frustration builds up and then they're all just taking it out on the nurses and there's no one like there's no one higher to be seen there you know so everyone's like the nurses end up being the face of UHL like and they end up just taking everything out on them so you're saying that you saw some people coming in and firing abuse at the nurses at the nurses station Oh yeah, they were getting us left, right and centre. Like Liam O'Brien there from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, the first Irish woman in space, Cork-born Rhiannon Adams, was talking to Ray Darcy. Uh, my next guest is a Cork-born photographer and if things go according to plan, she will be making history when she becomes the first Irish person to go into space. Rhiannon Adam, how are you? I'm good, how are you, Ray? <laughs> good to talk to you. You too. <laughs> Do you feel a bit of pressure? <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't be human if I didn't feel a little bit of pressure. <laughs> yeah. This is amazing. So it's it's SpaceX and it's uh, a Starship. It's Starship. Has Starship flown yet? Uh, no, it no. hasn't. Um, they're just gearing up now for an orbital launch of the whole assembly. Um, so yeah, it'll be, well, Starship Super Heavy is what we're going on, where they kind of link Starship with Super Heavy rocket and the two parts will go off together. And that's what we'll be travelling on. Right. And, and how long is the expedition? Well, it's between six and eight days. Yeah. Um, so seven days I'm going for as a nice happy medium. Um, so yeah, it's literally leaving Earth and um, going on a lunar orbital mission around the moon and then coming back to Earth, we hope. <laughs> so you would be going to the dark side of the moon? Exactly. Whoa. <laughs> Pink Floyd would be very proud. Yes, yes. And I, I've just reading there, you're, the, the, the starship is going to be within 200 metres of the lunar surface. Yeah. Cool. I know, oh, I can oh, almost oh, touch oh, it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> spectacular this is spectacular this is so exciting I'm so excited for you um, <laughs> so so it's all because of a guy called Yusaku Mizawa indeed tell us about him um, so MZ is well he's a Japanese billionaire and entrepreneur and um, he is very passionate about art and he has a massive art collection and he decided that instead of taking scientists who spend um 
well, I suppose up until now, they've been the kind of dominating factor in space mm. ex- exploration. He's decided to take a bunch of artists and creatives to be able to translate the experience of going to space for everyday people. So that's where we come in. What a brilliant idea. I mean, it's kind of groundbreaking, I think, um, just in terms of being able to think differently about science. Mm. Um, I think it's really important sometimes. So, so there's 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 you, there's an Indian actor, there's a Korean rapper or is there a there pop is. singer? Yeah, singer. Yep. And then there's... So, so you're there as a photographer, are you? Is that your main I am. skill? Yeah. Um, although you do other things, don't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I write a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I... I'm a photographer, but not in a traditional sense, as in I'm not, um, I don't shoot weddings. I don't really shoot products. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm not yeah. I'm not the kind yes, of photographer yeah, okay. that you generally think of. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, uh, so you're, you're going up there and you're going to bring a, a camera or two or five. Um, and he said, responsibility that comes with leaving the earth. So he, he has said this, that there mm. is a great responsibility that comes with leaving the earth with reference to you. So he's expecting big things from you and the seven other creatives who are going up into space at his expense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No <laughs> yeah. pressure again. <laughs> so, uh, Don't tell me this, Ray. Don't tell me this now. Yeah. Well, but look, I'm, I'm going to load on the pressure, uh, Rhiannon, because there's more to come. There's more to come. Uh, but, uh, yeah. but, but yes, so you, yeah, that must sort of cross your mind uh, the odd night when you're lying awake looking at the, the, the stars on your ceiling. Um, yeah. So, so what do you think will happen? What, 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 like, do you point a camera out a window? I, I just, you know, I, I, I don't know. What, what do you do? Well, thankfully, there's quite a lot of windows in this one. Right. So we're not going to have to be elbowing each other out of the way. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm mainly worried about how I'm going to get any sleep at all. Mm. Um, I can't imagine that I'll want to go to sleep when we're only there for a week. So mm. by the end of it, I'll probably look rather bedraggled. Um, yeah, you know, obviously everything functions in a different way in space. So we have to kind of rethink every single kind of day-to-day process but also in terms of trying to make work in space it's going to be completely different so I'm really excited about I think the opportunity that that gives me to think differently about what I'm able to produce Mm. and you know to be able to meet scientists or people that have done this before people that have had experience in working in extreme conditions and being able to think about you know, problem solving. I think that's really exciting. Um, the, the, The figures are astronomical. How many people applied for this? Yeah, like a million people. I should have won, I should have played the lottery, but in a way I'm kind of glad <laughs> yeah. I didn't because maybe that would have used up my Look, luck. Yeah. <laughs> and Ray asked Rhiannon about her childhood in Ireland. I'm reading your biog here uh, <laughs> and I can see what has prepared you for this. So <laughs> so born um, in Cork. Whereabouts in Cork? Indeed. Well, yeah, so I was born in Cork City, yes, but yeah, I didn't but spend very yes. long. Didn't spend very long in there. I actually um, grew up in a house called Rathrout, just outside of Ballinadee near Bandon. Right, um, and then at the age of seven, uh, your parents mm-hmm. come to you and say, "What?" Well, we were we were in Kinsale actually, and my uh, my parents found an ad for um, a boat that was for sale on a pub notice board, as most information seems to travel in Ireland. <laughs> And uh, and then we ended up buying this boat and um, went off into the kind of blue abyss. But the deal had been that we were going to return to Ireland by the time I was 12. It just never kind of wound up that way. Um, so, yeah, so I sailed around for a very long time and I wound up in London and my mum now lives in the States and my dad's in Thailand. So we all kind of spread out. Right. What was the name of the boat? Yanis. Yanis. Uh, right. Yeah, Yanis. It means um, Little John. It's bad luck to change a boat's name. Uh-huh. So, uh 
You have to leave it as it is. Okay. Yeah, you have to leave as it is. So you were leaving um, uh, probably a small national school yeah. in, in West Cork um, yeah. and you were taken to the sea, just you and two adults, so no other siblings. Nope. Uh, wow. How long did you do that? How many years? Um, so I came back um, to, well, I came to the UK when I was a teenager. So yeah, it was the best part of my, best part of my life. Your really. formative then, years, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, 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 that makes you something, doesn't it? Well, it's a weird, I mean, in some, in some ways, an adult, I can kind of look back on it as a sort of positive in some senses. But of course, it's brought out many negative traits. Like I'm very good at saying goodbye to people um, because you make friends quickly and Sorry, then you're I good at saying la- leave, laugh, leaving. But, but, it, but it's worked out well yeah. for space. <laughs> um, I'm good in an enclosed environment. Should we put it that way? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with other people's bodily functions at close quarters. <laughs> right. These are all positives. Yes. <laughs> you know, exactly. When I think about it now. Yeah. Um, and what are your memories? You know, what are your memories of, of a seven-year-old Leaving, you know, your friends um, and the place that you knew and setting off uh, on the Atlantic Ocean. Have you any clear memories? I mean, to me, I I mean, I was broken hearted leaving Ireland, to be honest. Um, My best friend, Lee, like I used to practice his name in handwriting every day and I would write in postcards from wherever we stopped. And, you know, I never wanted to leave Ireland. Um, Yeah, it was it was a real struggle for me. And I remember us leaving because we had these Ballon D Crusaders uh, sweatshirts yeah. that um, a friend of ours had made. And it just didn't feel real with beginner's symbols on the front. And uh, off we went on the boat. But we had to leave twice, actually, because the first time we left, we left at the wrong time of year. So we did a complete turnaround. And um, I remember my mum shaving her toes to disguise herself in the municipal swimming pool so that her best friend wouldn't realise it was her. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, she'll never <laughs> Recognize me if I shave my toes. She'll never recognize me. <laughs> oh, that, oh, that's brilliant detail. <laughs> that's, there you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you, you you're a type of person then, and obviously MZ. If if he doesn't mind me calling him MZ, um, he spotted that in you, and that's why you emerged from a million applicants to be one of eight. Um, uh, which, I mean, which, yeah. I mean, it was interesting meeting him actually because. I think he goes against so many of the stereotypes that we have about what we think a billionaire is going to be like when we meet them. Um, he just wanted to know, I, I wear rings on my right and left hand, like I'm covered in them. Right. And he wanted to know the stories behind all of them. And he wanted to know if we'd ever seen pirates or, you know, he wanted to know about life experiences yes, much yeah, more. Yeah. Um, and I guess you have to figure that out because you have to work out if you're going to like the people that you're going to be stuck in a capsule with. Because um, he's going up as well. I forgot to yeah, mention that. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. He's going up too. So, you know, he has to work out if we can get on and, you know, what what we all like as a group. So we spent a good amount of time together and interacting and trying to, you know, I suppose, figure out personalities. And Ray asked Rhiannon about the importance of representation. Very briefly, we were talking about women in space. So over 600 people have been in space, only 75 of them. Uh, are women mm-hmm. or women? Um, so you're going to be one more if 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 and when it happens. Um, and are you the only female of this crew? Yeah, I mean, there's two backup crew. So if um, if someone breaks a leg just before we leave or catches the flu or something like that, then um, there's two. There's me, you, and Caitlin. Um, me, you's a dancer, and Caitlin's a, a Olympic gold medalist right. in snowboarding. Um, and so the two of them are waiting in the wings. Uh. Uh, so, so you're representing women? 
yeah. as well as you know whatever photographers or whatever. And, and then you're also representing the, or do you feel like you're representing the LGBT community, or is that of part course. of it? You do, yes. Yeah, okay. I mean, in a massive way, I think it's really important. I mean, you know. So, what's the history of the LGBT community in space then? There's basically not a lot. Right. <laughs> there's Sally Ride, and you know she essentially came out in her obituary when she said that you know when it was written that she was survived by her partner of 27 years. Um, and then there was another woman more recently, but um, she wasn't out at the time that she went to space, even though she was actually married. And this kind of says so much, I think, the way that people felt compelled to conceal their personal lives because they were afraid, you know, that actually this would have an impact on their career. And, and I mean, historically, that has been the case. Mm. Um, NASA was very connected, of course, to the military. So... There is a history of um, kind of, you know, probably there are more gay people and queer people that we know, than we know about, but many of them will, would have flown under the radar mm. um, because of don't ask, don't tell policies and such. So, you know, it's really important to me. And I think, you know, there are, there are more than, I think there's about 10 countries in the world where my existence is um, punishable by the death penalty. Um, and I think people forget this, that when we live in a nice, cushy Western country where it's all quite accepting, that actually there are people dying for being who I am. And um, I think that we can't underestimate that. And, you know, the great part about space is that, you know, so far we've not had a war in space. It's uh, We've come to certain kind of international agreements in space that we haven't managed to, to broker on Earth. And I think that everyone has a fascination with space and it has this transformative aspect, which, you know, it, it goes across cultural, geographical it's boundaries. It's borderless, I suppose. Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. And, and we so all far, look to I space. Don't, I don't see yeah. how they could put borders in space. But there <laughs> it's you go. quite they'll, difficult. <laughs> yeah, I know, but they'll, they'll dream up something. Uh, well, I'll have, <laughs> I'll have the moon. You can have, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You can have Venus. I'll have the dark <laughs> I'll side. Take Mars. I'll have the dark side, please. Thank you very much. Rhiannon Adam on The Ray Darcy Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, Jagger, Debbie Harry, Jethro Tull, Dave Fanning was talking about the iconic front men and women in pop and rock. What is a, a front man or a front woman? Like how well, can first you of define all, them? If you're looking for a definition, you're never going to get one. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing. I mean, seriously. Magic fairy dust. Yeah, it's just also like if you have a favourite band, it's very likely that the person singing is the person you're going to say is your favourite singer and your favourite front person and all the rest, you know? I mean, it's just like one of my... The, the, the band New Order, uh, some of my friends would have them as their favourite band. Just dour Mancunians, so dour they fight and fight and fought amongst themselves, brought out great music. But the lead guy, I mean, Bernard Summer, he just does nothing, stands there. He doesn't even sound like an instrument in the band. And yet it works, it's fine. So when something is sort of not great as that can work, mm-hmm. then anything can work. It's just Can no you definition. even define it as stage presence and magnetism? Well, I mean, if you want me to go all the way and say something like that, it's all about harnessing and directing the band's energy and intensity and making it more than just some people playing some songs. <laughs> I will, but I'm not going to go down that route and I wouldn't believe that for a second. I mean, first of all, the, the, like those great male singers and great female singers, but not all of them are front people. Stage presence that kind of captivates the audience completely is one thing. And also sometimes you'd say, like Freddie Mercury, I can't imagine him doing anything else. If you yeah. can't imagine him doing anything else, then he's working on what he's doing or something. You OK, know? well, let's um, take a listen to somebody who might be at the top of many people's lists. Here's Mick Jagger. <laughs> Oh, 
what's the thing there? <laughs> well, it wasn't the Maroon 5 10 years ago actually had a song called Moves Like Jagger. Yeah. And it does sum it up. I mean, Mick's voice is ridiculous. It's just like a parody of itself. They had a song called Girl With The Faraway Eyes. And from that time onwards, they were just taking off an American kind of slangy way of singing. And it was just hilarious. But he's so cool. He's the best. Also, it helps that they have, like, a lot of great bands have four or five great songs. The Stones have 50 great songs, and that really does help. He, like, even now, like, at his, whatever age he is, it's fantastic yeah. the way he moves around the stage. He just has it. I don't know what he's it is. He's got very flamboyant. Is he, how old is he? Is he 70? He's about 77, I yeah. suppose. I don't know. God, 78, amazing. maybe. 79. It's amazing. I, it's I mean, I'll tell you a funny thing is you played Blondie earlier on, and, like, Blondie would be, like, you know, the, the, the female in front of male vocal, or of male musicians. So you have, like, Garbage or Florence and the Machine or Alabama Shakes the Carpenters you can nearly say as well because Karen was the main person in that the Pretenders obviously yeah 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 as recently Susie and the Banshees a woman in front of blokes and they really have to kind of supposedly step up and really do it and most of the ones I've just mentioned really do they really have something now the funny thing about it is that when, when Blondie started and became famous she was quite old like compared to the contemporaries who were 23, 24 she was already 33, 34 and she had been a playboy bunny and worked in the rock clubs and, and you, so when you see her on top of the pops doing Denis which was the big breakthrough single over here and the camera's moving sideways like this and she kind of looks at us oh yeah okay I'm playing for the audience here she just had it now it helps by the fact that sometimes people are really good looking like Harry Styles is good looking uh, Debbie Harry was good looking that kind of thing it really helps it does I'm sure it does I was watching uh, Jules Holland on New Year's Eve and he had this artist on called Self Esteem oh yeah and I just thought she had it you couldn't take your eyes off her we got Fanning of Whelan's was on at the exact same time on another channel I haven't recorded Dave I haven't recorded okay fair enough <laughs> but that's what I mean it's yeah. just that thing where you're compelled Jagger oh, yeah. you're compelled to watch but I mean, like, it stop. depends like, for instance, like one of the great bands of the prog rock era was Jethro Tull he stood on one leg he had a cod piece and he played a flute like that helps <laughs> Paul Rogers knew how to use the microphone in free Rod Stewart knows how to use the microphone what, what do you call him I, I'm, in the, I'm in the mic stand um, Roger Daltrey of The Who throws the mic in each hand and I must say I've seen him do it a thousand times I've never seen him let it fall so that's pretty cool You know, do, there's so do, many different ones that do different things do they have to do all that jigging no, around no 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 I mean look at Leonard Cohen when I saw him in the 70s loads of times in the stadium he didn't move this time around he didn't move either when he's much older he just doffed his hat now and again because people realise just you know we're mm-hmm. here for the music and that's good enough he's there to serve whatever it is he's supposed to one of my favourites would be Joe Strummer from The Clash who used to spit it all out as the band was really getting it going and that really helped you don't have to move from side to side like Axl Rose who does it so well Terry Hall from the specials. Yeah, I mean, again, deceased. he's a bit like New Order to me. Like, he didn't really do an awful lot mm. and didn't sound an awful lot either. He just kind of stood there and did it. But it's still, you know, it worked. And that's really... I mean, one of the, a great example would be Brian Ferry. When they started off, like, Roxy was just fantastic, kind of, didn't give a damn about the audience, looking like 50s greasers. And it was just brilliant, the first Roxy music. And I never gave... I mean, the music of Roxy music. I never gave out that he became a bit of a crooner and went to wine bar music and always dressed in a tuxedo. It kind of suited him. It was perfect, yeah, you know? Yeah, it just worked. Yeah. And Tina Turner, of course. I saw Tina Turner live, magnificent again. Well, as the uh, uh, Tina Turner, as the, as the I gets beforehand, and like all the, the, the backing band to Ike and Tina Turner, they were just amazing on stage, just incredible performance. You know, like Ike didn't have to do anything except be in charge, mm-hmm. supposedly, you know. But there's so many, like Joey Ramone, the way he leant over the microphone, and the other guys just thrashing it all out. So, or David Byrne, the other way around. I mean, look at look at Stop Making Sense, which we spoke about before, yeah. where he starts off with all the jerky movements like this on, 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 on what do you call it, on Cycle Killer. And then the big suit and he just you know different kind of props that work very well or Bono on his recent show of just the solo thing like astonishing stuff that was going on on stage there and brilliant performance Dave Fanning from Today with Claire Byrne 
And on the live line with a crisis in hospitals around the country, Jacqueline called Katie Hannan in the afternoon about her experience of attending Limerick University Hospital in December. It was traumatic. I have no desire ever to live that again and I'm still traumatised by the incident. Um, I, I had a, a bad fall. It was actually before the ice uh, in early December. Um, I, an ambulance was called for me because I don't remember much of that. Went into the hospital. I was seen more or less in, in about 15, 20 minutes to, to x-ray me. After that, it became a disaster. Okay, now I just say, I have actually seen the photographs of you, Jacqueline, uh, from that time. And they're pretty horrific. That they're horrific. very distressing in terms of the the bruising and and the the damage that was obvious to see in your body. Uh, so t- take me through it. What happened after the accident? Okay, I, I I fell outside in in, in my um, apartment and uh, somebody rang an ambulance for me. I was taken out there to the UHL. Uh, they brought me after about maybe fifteen minutes to X-ray, and uh, after that they brought me back to a trolley. Uh, didn't, wasn't explained what was going to happen or anything. Uh, if I can go back and forth, I was on the trolley for 27 hours. In that period of time, um, I was, wasn't was brought to the toilet twice. Uh, I wasn't seen to. I wasn't seen. I wasn't heard. Uh, so it you, was horrific. You were, so are you, are you on your own, Jacqueline, in this situation? I am. I so, am. I'm so, on my own. Okay, yes. you're I, on your I, own. I, I'm, my, I'm on my own. My family is abroad. Uh, I had nobody with me. Uh, you saw the photographs. So my mouth was all blood, all dried. I couldn't speak. Uh, I wasn't fed, except I had to scream as much as I could after about 20 hours being there for somebody to feed me and give me a drink. I was put on an IV line, a cannula, and I wasn't um, actually given any uh, drip. I wasn't given anything. I was dehydrated. I wasn't given water. Uh, I called everybody. I, I could Now, you saw the photographs. I could barely speak out through my mouth. And I'm like, please, somebody give me a drink. I mean, even after surgery, when you come out, you're giving like something like a lollipop stick with a sponge at the end of it to wet my lips. Mm. That's all I wanted. And nobody was answering me. And I said, please, will somebody answer me? The um, the ladies that go around with the trolley for the breakfast mm-hmm. or the cheese, they brought it, left it at the end. I said, can somebody feed me? Because you saw my two hands. I couldn't lift my hands. Yeah, so just to explain to people, Jacqueline, again, who won't have seen those photographs, you, was it both your wrists were broken? One was sprained and one was broken. Right. One was in a cast and the other was put into a splint. I couldn't lift both of them. You saw my elbows. You saw right up my hands how bruising it was. covered in bruises, yeah. Purple, deep Red purple horrendous. bruises. I yeah. couldn't lift my hands. I still can't. And so, um, and, and again, you were on a corridor. Was there other uh, people it, in trolleys oh, on either side of you? Was, you couldn't put a mouse between the trolleys. I mean, the doctors and nurses were standing walking. There was nobody. It was like you were being ignored. They were desensitised. They were dehumanised. It was just horrendous. They were like, we, we're too busy. We get you in a minute. And the minute never came. And the, I mean, like, and I really could not speak. Now, I've worked in this industry, in this field rather, for 27, 30 years. So I know what I'm talking about. There was an old woman, I'd say she was about 78. 
and she could speak, you know, she was on a trolley and she was like crying for me. She was like, if I could help you, I could get up and help you. And I was distressed because I was upsetting other people. I just needed to go to the toilet. I needed to be fed. I needed basic human, you know, it, it, it was horrendous. Oh, it just, it, I actually now, cannot as imagine I say, how often that would be. you saw the photographs because you can imagine the, the way I looked. You can visualise this. It's very hard to imagine people walking past you, though, when you when you are in that state now, and, and not I, checking I said, with you. Uh, yeah, now I won't mention any names. I do know the names and I do know the ages of the nurse, but I won't say it. But there was a particular young nurse and uh, I, she, I, I called her so many times and eventually I said, like, will please somebody help me? Will you imagine I'm your mother? And she came over and she said, I'll try and feed you. And she fed me about four spoons and it was cold. It was literally cold food. It was like sick and vomit. It was so bad. And I said, I can't, I couldn't eat it. I said, give me a drink. And then I said, I'm sorry for asking you. I said, but just imagine I'm your mother. She cried in front of me, left me there and said, excuse me, went away, came back about four minutes later and apologised and said, I'm sorry. And I said, I'm sorry for upsetting you. Did I make you cry? And she said, I'm exhausted. Oh, I, and I was, I, my heart was broken because she looked, I have a daughter of 24, and I'll put it to you this way, she was younger than her. And she said she was exhausted. Jacqueline there. Then Joanne called about her daughter, who was a doctor. Joanne, you got in touch about your daughter, who is, just as Jacqueline was saying, they're working in this, in this scenario. Tell me about it. She's a junior doctor, is she? Yes, she's a non-consultant hospital doctor. Um, she's in her going into her second year mm-hmm. post qualification, and she regularly works very long hours. Now she has just worked over an eighty-hour shift, and when you say I shift, you're saying over a course of a, over a week, course is it? Of a, a number of days. Yes, she's exhausted, and she's genuinely worried about whether she can continue working in medicine. Um, you know, doctors study for a number of years, then they work as interns, SHOs and so forth. Um, the hours are very difficult. She knew the, the hours were going to be challenging. Um, I think the hospital system at the moment is severely understaffed. So much so that she brings a lot of her work home with her because she's concerned that you might have missed something because they're mm. they're working at such speed and um, they try to give attention and care to each patient and make sure everybody is kept safe. But it's difficult to keep people safe in the chaos of a busy hospital at the moment. Is she working in the um, emergency department? She works in the emergency department from time to time. But her main job isn't in the emergency department. Because I suppose a lot of us think about, when we think about this chaos, we think about the emergency department. But of course, that's only a reflection of the overcrowding that's happening elsewhere in the hospital as well. Yes, it is. I mean, when patients are triaged in the emergency department, they then have to move either to a bed, which in a lot of cases is a trolley in the corridor, or they have to move to an area of specialisation depending on what's wrong with them. And one thing my daughter said at the end of this week was that she's tired of having to apologise as front of house for a totally broken system. 
Mm. Uh, she regularly comes home in tears and totally exhausted, distressed and disillusioned about the whole thing. You must be really worried about her. I am very worried about her. Um, she went into this. She's very dedicated. She loves her job. She's a very good doctor. And she doesn't even mind sacrificing a lot of her personal life for her job. But it really is becoming unsustainable. Is there medicine in the family? Is that, was that what took her into this role? Or? No, um, her dad died of cancer a number of years ago. Oh, I'm sorry, and Joanne. Thank you. And she was so impressed by the care he got. And she just decided she wanted to be a doctor. Oh, my God. So that that's what brought her to this. Yes. And now she's thinking she she might have to walk away from it. Yes, she's genuinely weighing it all up at the moment. That's Joanne on the live line with Katie Hannon. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, the first fortnight Mental Health, Art and Culture Festival runs from the 6th to the 15th of January. Ronan Conway spoke to Ryan about giving up his day job to work with young people. Let's begin at the beginning um, with uh, where you're from and take us up to how you got into this area. I will. Please. Um, So I'm from Cork and I moved to Dublin 10 years ago. Before I moved to Dublin, when I was living in Cork, my background was in business and IT. Uh, a lot of my time would have been spent playing hurling uh, up in the local GA club in Bishopstown. And um, yeah, I was found myself in jobs and careers that I wasn't really interested in. And as much as I, they're good jobs, yeah. really, they just weren't for me. So I found there was a bit of lack of meaning. Well, let's um, talk about that for yeah, a second yeah. before we move on, because I think it probably informed who you are today. Yeah. Uh, and and, and there's, this is a great time of the year to have this conversation because a lot of people sitting around today either working from home or desperately trying to get back to the office to meet with humans again and really get into and become more creative, possibly. Yeah. Um, and they're saying to themselves sometimes, I, I, my job is really boring. Um, I, I'm, I'm paid OK, um, but I'm not treated so well. Mm. Uh, and I, and uh, I think I need new horizons. What do you say to those people? Because mm. you were one of those people once. I was. Um and you know it's a forever it's a never ending journey like I might have this in 10 years time as well you yeah. know? but like when I did have it 10 years ago and I, I, I remember just going to work and feeling that you know I wasn't excited to be there I wasn't excited to engage in what we were trying to achieve together I didn't really feel like part of the organisation either yeah. so I think it just took a bit of reflection time and probably going through a few hard months of maybe you know feeling a bit anxious or you know it, it actually took going down into maybe uncomfortable feelings to actually realise something needs to change. Yeah. And and I thought that the job was a pretty huge part of that. So The unhappiness, yeah. Yeah, if you yeah, like. Yeah. Uh, it takes guts to leave a job mm. and it takes guts to jump to another career uh, option. So mm. that's probably why you had to dig so deep because you knew you were going to have to jump off a cliff of some sort. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and, and tell me about the jump and, and you know, the changing of horses if, in, in the race. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's how I actually... That's how I picture it in my mind. Yeah. Like I picture like being on a horse going in one direction and knowing that I was should be going in the other direction. So okay. what, what got me off that initial horse was a good friend of mine, Dear Middling, um, gave me a call one day, one rainy night down in Cork when I was on the bus. It was bleak. It was November. Mm. And he said, 
Ronnie Khan. He calls me Ronnie Khan. He said, "Do you want to come up to? Uh, do you want to come up to Dublin and come to the opening of a youth organisation called the Sora Foundation?" And I had nothing better to be doing, so I said, "I'll certainly jump in a bus and I'll come up and I'll check it out and we'll hang out together and I'll see what this is all about." So, long story short, I sat in on a interactive workshop um, uh, that Sora ran. So it was they were trying to recruit new employees for mm-hmm. this new youth organisation yeah. um, so I sat in and I was a participant in the conversation and high level it was talking about life and where we've come from and what inf- influenced our paths and the way it was facilitated by the founders was just so beautifully done I'd never seen anything like that before I'd never experienced being in a conversation like that in my life with a group that I didn't know mm. so pretty instantly I said this is I am if if there's a possibility that I can create this for other people down the line, this is what I'm going to put on my uh, my. This is where I'm going to put my eggs into this basket. So it's like you kind of fell in love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, with, with with the job, you just thought, okay, this is this is a nice bunch of people. They're talking my language, and suddenly, yeah. whatever you had been doing, yeah. it, it went into the shadows, and this the the light came out. Yeah, yeah. It was like I remember leaving the conversation that night and just being almost like in a daze going, wow, I didn't know that there was that part of myself was Mm. there and that other people felt similar on different topics. And it was powerful, it was transformative. And to be honest, that's the great work that SOAR are doing. And what are SOAR? Who who are they or what what do they do? do? Yeah, so SOAR are 10 years old now. They're a a youth organisation. They run uh, self-esteem resilience workshops for teenagers in schools all around the country. So they're based here in Dublin. And a bunch of facilitators travelling their cars out to schools, country schools, city schools, mixed girls, guys. And and in terms of young people uh, in schools and resilience and all the attendant things, is it a a universal story in some ways? Or is it a rural urban thing? Or is it a class thing? Or do all young people have the same, broadly speaking, set of anxieties, if you like? Yeah, yeah. Well, first things first, I've been to schools dotted all around the country and when people say what are teenagers going through I don't mm. think it's as simple as saying this is what they're going through because it all comes down to the culture of the school I feel yeah, and like yeah. you know you might have one school which is 100 metres away from the other and they might have completely different cultures completely different anxieties so um, I just think the main thing for like teenage years are a liminal phase of life so they're not it's an in-between phase. They're not adults. They're not kids. Yeah. So, like, I think it's really important to provide a container, a safe container where they can sort through the different anxieties or the different hopes and aspirations they have. And Ronan spoke about the work SOAR do, giving this example from talking to schools. Um, I'd say it was around six years ago. I travelled down to Munster. We got a call from a school saying that there was a a gang rivalry going on in a school. So I was going down, <laughs> I was bracing myself. Uh, but we went down and um, when I remember it was in this big convent, kind of wooden kind of floors and high high ceilings. And I walked in and there was 50 teenagers in there, guys and girls. And their heads were down and their shoulders were slumped and I, you could feel the tension. And um, I introduced myself they were eyeing me up. You could see they were. Yeah, who's your man? Uh, yeah, who's your man yeah. from Cork? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so then um, 15 minutes in, we were speaking about influences in our lives. And I asked, put your hands up if you have um, 
immigrated from a different country to be here. So of the 50, 10 had. Put your hands up if you've ever felt anxious in your life and 35 roughly, mm-hmm. put your hands up. Put your hands up if you've ever had body um, uh, body image yeah. issues. Yeah. And there's 30. Um, and put your hands up if you've ever experienced bullying. 30 of 50. So as the hands were going up and down, like you could feel the tension and the animosity just dissolving um, until one of the girls stood up at the very end who was, quote unquote, one of the leaders of the gangs. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know what, I just want to say something. She said, I come in here and I treat you like hell. And I, uh, but I just want to say I'm pretty miserable. I'm going through a tough time at home. The reason I am projecting my stuff onto you is because I'm deeply unhappy. Ronan Conway from The Ryan Tuberty Show. Now, what do you mean you don't like that inflatable foot spa or the jumper that was two sizes too big? Well, on Morning Ireland, Rachel English was talking to consumer rights expert Sinead Ryan about taking those Christmas gifts back to the shop. Now, the question I was asking is this. If something is perfect but just not wanted, can you take it back? Well, there's no automatic right in consumer legislation for that to happen. And I think a lot of people get confused about that, mainly because so many stores are very good at taking items back, but they don't have to. And during the sales, they're even less likely to do so because, let's be honest, nobody wants the Santa jumpers back in the shops in January. And you'll find that a lot of the shops will have a little sign up at the counter maybe that says your statutory rights are not affected, but we're not taking returns. Now, your statutory rights are those that uh, allow you to take back an item if it's faulty, if it's not as described or if it's not fit for purpose. And they are enshrined in law. But where a good is perfectly um, presentable and does what it's supposed to do, they don't have to take it back. And in many cases, they just simply won't. So there aren't rights there, unfortunately. Sinead Ryan from Morning Ireland. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself, till next time.